welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. As is often the case, my head is spinning with thoughts and ideas that come out of one's daily life. I think that the title of this particular episode will be Beware the Atheistic Moment. I mean, I'm talking to myself mostly, but when I talk to myself, I'm also talking to you. (laughs) Well, sometimes I'm often talking to myself when I'm not on this podcast. And my plan is to tie together a couple of things. Uh, A poem called Thanatopsis, which I read at the age of about 17, which me being not quite as smart was about the age that William Cullen Bryant wrote the poem. And the other thing I'm going to tie into it is the phrase that there are no atheists in foxholes. What the heck is she talking about? Well, I'll try to tell you. No doubt I've mentioned in past episodes that even as a very young kid, I thought a great deal about death. Now, the substance of the thoughts does change as one gets older. I'm not sure how to articulate the change, except that when you're closer to it, the substance gets a little bit bigger and more meaty, hence substantial, less abstract, and more tangible. One can touch the idea of death at a later age, while at a younger age, you can more readily, safely, sort of, even statistically, put it on a shelf. But uh, for me, the period between 17 and 18, and I'm sure that many youngsters go through this, but my experience of it was that between 17 and 18, I was, I guess I was depressed. I, I, I would think, looking back, that's probably what it was. And alas, that was around the time that whether it was because of depression or just laziness or the craziness of the world around us, like the craziness has stopped now, she says. <laughs> the cat hasn't. But it was crazy then, too. This was the 60s and 70s. But at that time, I had lapsed from Catholicism, just around that time. So now, and I'm trying to reconstruct this. It's very hard to do that this far on. But I was trying to understand life having walked away from my faith. Actually, it wasn't walk. It was I let it go. That's, I guess, what lapsing means in a sense. And somehow or another, I became aware of the fact that lots of young people, people in general, did things like commit suicide. And I kept becoming obsessed about what's the difference between me and them? Why would someone do that and why would I not do that? Given the fact that the same things of life, the same crises of life affect me as they affect other people around me, certainly in my own society, and I was, in fact, very depressed. Things around me didn't seem to have a very fresh glow. It was sort of a haze on things for about a year. In addition to the hypochondria that I experienced in those days, I began to be obsessed about not wanting to commit suicide, but kind of afraid that I had that switch that other people apparently had that they acted upon. Their switch went on, they committed suicide. I remember when I was, I think, working downtown as a young intern or something, Uh, I was walking past the municipal building and there was a story or a tape or something that someone had jumped off the top of the municipal building. 
and I became terrified of standing on roofs or any place near where there would be a height and I would look over. What would stop me and not stop them? And so this went on for about a year. So maybe I was just trying to make the concept of death make sense as, as kids do. And then of course, as we try to do as we get older, even more earnestness. I mean, after all, what I was probably trying to do was quell my fear of life and death at the same time. Someone might say, well, you should have gone to your parents. I have a vague memory of trying to eke out some expression of what was going on in my head, but I couldn't make much of it, so it probably was impossible for me to be clear about what was going on. I suppose in lieu of religion, I was looking for something to give me a sense of camaraderie in facing life in the shadow of an inevitable death. And the fact that even as a child, things seemed terribly complicated to me and that we, I, was always in need of being hypervigilant about the Bigfoot a la Monty Python coming down on your head just as maybe you were having a moment of equanimity. Don't have those moments of equanimity. And I have to admit, I haven't had that many. All of which, as I'm thinking about it, makes me remember another poem called Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll, which is a children's poem, but it's not about a children's subject. "'Twas brillig and the slithy toves that gyre and jimble in the wave. All mimsy were the burgroves and the momraths outgrave. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. So even in this poem, you start out with a very nice world. Life is good, flowers are blooming, and then it comes, the jabberwock. What's the jabberwock? It's danger, it's evil, it's all those things that children fear that are in their closets and under their beds and they ain't so far wrong. My friends are going to think that this is yet another episode of a program I did 45, 45 years ago? Hang on, let me think about it. Yep, over 45 years ago called uh, Poetry Because I Like It. And then Poetry is for People on my college radio station. What can I say? The poetry is speaking to me again. And I guess I want you to hear the poem that I found some comfort in albeit not one of faith, but one of humanism. But still, it gave me a sense that, well, kind of we're all in it together. Don't spend so much time worrying about it. Just go forward and live your life. Kind of that existentialist banner. Go out there and fight as you are thrown into the world. And it makes no sense, but we're all going to be ultimately in the same place, and that's okay. Now, why that made me happy, who knows? I mean, I was 17 years old and going through stuff like all angsting 17-year-olds. I hope you don't mind. It's a pretty long one, but I feel the need to share it. You can always skip ahead. Thanatopsis by the 17-year-old William Cullen Bryant. To him, who in the love of nature holds communion with her visible forms, she speaks a various language. For his gayer hours, she has a voice of gladness and a smile and eloquence of beauty, and she glides into his darker musings 
with a mild and healing sympathy that steals away their sharpness ere he is aware. When thoughts of the last bitter hour come like a blight over thy spirit, and sad images of the stern agony and shroud and pall, and breathless darkness and the narrow house make thee to shudder and grow sick at heart, go forth under the open sky, and list to nature's teachings, while from all around, earth and her waters and the depths of air, comes a still voice. Yet a few days, and thee the all-beholding sun shall see no more, in all his course, nor yet in the cold ground, where thy pale form was laid with many tears, nor in the embrace of ocean shall exist thy image. Earth, that nourished thee, shall claim thy growth, to be resolved to earth again, and, lost each human trace, surrendering up thine individual being, shalt thou go to mix forever with the elements, to be a brother to the insensible rock and to the sluggish clod, which the rude swain turns with his share and treads upon. The oak shall send his roots abroad and pierce thy mould. Yet, not to thine eternal resting place shalt thou retire alone, nor couldst thou wish couch more magnificent. Thou shalt lie down with patriarchs of the infant world, with kings, the powerful of the earth, the wise, the good, fair forms and hoary seers of ages past, all in one mighty sepulchre. The hills rock-ribbed with ancient as the sun, the vales stretching in pensive quietness between, the venerable woods, rivers that move in majesty, and the complaining brooks that make the meadows green and poured round all, old ocean's gray and melancholy waste, are but the solemn decorations all of the great tomb of man. The golden sun, the planets, all the infinite host of heaven are shining on the sad abodes of death through the still lapse of ages. All that tread the globe are but a handful to the tribes that slumber in its bosom. Take the wings of morning, pierce the bark and wilderness, or lose thyself in the continuous woods where rolls the Aragon, and hears no sound save his own dashings. Yet the dead are there, and millions in those solitudes since first the flight of years began have laid them down in their last sleep, the dead reign there alone. So shalt thou rest. And what if thou withdraw in silence from the living, and no friend take note of thy departure? All that breathe will share thy destiny. The gay will laugh when thou art gone, the solemn brood of care plod on, and each one as before will chase his favorite phantom. Yet all these shall leave their mirth and their employments, and shall come and make their bed with thee. As the long train of ages glide away, the sons of men, the youth in life's green Spring, and he who goes in the full strength of years, matron and maid, the speechless babe and the gray-headed man, shall one by one be gathered to thy side by those who in their turn shall follow them. So live, that when thy summons comes to join the innumerable caravan which moves to that mysterious realm where each shall take his chamber in the silent halls of death, thou go not like the quarry slave at night scourged to his dungeon, but, sustained and soothed by an unfaltering trust, approach thy grave, 
like one who wraps the drapery of his couch about him and lies down to pleasant dreams. Boy, I must have been one depressed 17-year-old for that to make me feel better. So the years pass. Time passes, and I am Catholic again, and I look at this poem, and it's actually unsatisfying. If I were to add to the latter stanzas of the poem, the part that says, uh, let's see, to that mysterious realm where each shall take his chamber in the silent halls of death, thou go not like the quarry slave at night, scourged to his dungeon, but sustained and soothed by an unfaltering trust, approach thy grave like one who wraps the drapery of his couch about him and lies down to pleasant dreams, I would add, my not poetic writing, for the trust in he who stumbled on the rugged ground, burdened by the weight of the rude, will open the mere dreams to an eternal reality that will turn the bitter hour into light. So the Catholic me, the one who came back to the faith around 1983 at about the age of 29, would not have been satisfied and is not currently satisfied at the much later age of the late 60s with the Thanatopsis ending and concept in terms of it's not enough to be part of nature. It's not enough to be laying with everybody else in the ground amid the leaves. My trust, though unfortunately a faltering trust as opposed to an unfaltering trust, is in the fact that God became man and led the way back to paradise. So I'm back to the theme. Beware the atheistic moment. When I am being pressured by obligations, circumstances, responsibilities of life, as all we are, if the pressures become overpowering to me, I begin to obsess on them to the point where something problematic happens. And this is hard to admit, but maybe others have experienced this and it's a commonality that kind of like the poem by Bryant brings a certain recognition, a certain camaraderie because we're all struggling with the same things. What happens to me is I almost can't pray at all. I'm too busy doing the opposite of what Padre Pio said. He said, you know, pray and don't worry, but I worry and don't pray. And you may say, oh, this isn't possible. I actually no longer know in these overpowering moments whether I even believe anymore. More and more as I've gotten older, I believe that this is a form of temptation and a great, great, terrible form of temptation, not just because it's happening to me, but because I think it happens to a lot of people and it's just not something people speak about. I know people who pray more in these moments. I seem to have the opposite response. And I have to tell you, at least it feels reflexive. It feels as if I have no control over it. You know what it's like? I have a couple of things that just popped into my head. One is dealing with an inanimate object. You know how you go into a, a parking lot and it, every floor looks exactly the same, every space looks exactly the same, and you're kind of mindlessly parking and you go off and do your business and when you come back, you have no idea where you left your car. 
you start quietly, you start looking quietly. Okay, I was on this floor, I'm pretty sure. We don't find the car. And then you start to panic. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to go to every floor because I don't know where my car is. And then I'm going to have to find someone to help me with one of those little wagons to find my car. And another, which is related to person-to-person experience, and that is you're a child. This has actually never happened to me, at least as far as I remember. But you get lost in a... Uh, shopping center or in some large crowd and you can't find your parents. I've seen children to whom that has happened and that has always felt even as watching it as something to engender panic. I'm thinking of poor old Judas again because there's a part of me as I'm speaking that makes me think that He experienced something of what I'm talking about when our Lord was walking the earth and was trying to explain to the apostles, often in parables, what his plan was, what he was going to do, and what it meant to the salvation of the human race and reconciliation with God. But Judas was pressured by the things of the world, so pressured that he betrayed God-made men. And then in that, what I'm calling the atheistic moment, he compounded it by hanging himself in a fit of remorse. I guess what I'm saying is that we must beware because we are all potentially atheists in a weak moment. I've talked in the past about my two bugaboos, and I don't think I'm alone in these, and that is fear and anger, which I believe are very closely related. I think the fear creates the anger. I have this image of Judas, you know. He's fuming out of a fear that Jesus isn't going to do what he thinks what he expects will save Israel, which will bring the Jews away from the slavery of so many people who have conquered them and of Rome at this particular time. And the other apostles are going along with it. And he thinks they're wrong. He becomes panicky and he loses the ability to see Jesus, to see him at all. And that moment condemns him. Now, as to myself, I don't recommend that you stand there screaming, what are you doing to me, Lord? Which I admit to having done quite a lot over the years, usually in front of my picture of our Lord that I have in my bedroom. I clearly have lost all perspective of the fact that his plan is well beyond me and that I'm a thread in that plan. I try to take comfort that, well, at least I'm talking to him, even if I'm yelling like a bad child. All I can say is, even if it's just a little, a sign of the cross, which which I've read or heard or something will drive away the devil's temptation, maybe not immediately, do a rosary, do a part of a rosary. When I've had these crazy times, I've done that in the car, for example, and I can't even keep track of how many Hail Marys I've said, and I go, did I start the third decade of the Glorious Mystery, or am I still on the second? As other thoughts just waft and wave through my mind, I know I beg God not to let me give in to my atheistic moment. Beware the spiritual Jabberwocky. I say to all of us, to me, to you, be a child and run to God, the Father to our brother Jesus Christ, and to the guiding love of the Holy Spirit. I feel for Judas, but I don't want to be him. 
I would rather be Peter, full of weakness, but who, after betraying God himself, wept bitterly at his failure, but with the grace of God, did not walk away from his Lord, as did Judas. We're living in a time right now where not only ordinary life pressures, but an entire society's pressures are so overwhelming that it is easy to lose sight of God and crash into a wall of despair. I think I, I think all of us have to be especially on guard to these atheistic moments. You can hear the devil say, it's okay, it doesn't matter. Look around you, it doesn't matter. It matters absolutely to your soul, to our individual souls. I was looking for a prayer to end this podcast and one maybe to have by your bed when at night the gloom descends, the fear, the too many thoughts, the where are you, Lords, come into your mind, where there is a danger that the devil is pressing you to say, you don't need him, you don't need him, you don't want him. Here's the prayer. It's actually from St. Ignatius. Christ Jesus, when all is darkness and we feel our weakness and helplessness, give us the sense of your presence, your love, and your strength. Help us to have perfect trust in your protecting love and strengthening power so that nothing may frighten or worry us. For living close to you, we shall see your hand, your purpose, your will through all things. Here's something that I think is critical. In that moment, when you don't feel like praying because it's all pressing in on you, that's the moment to do it. I'm talking to myself, probably more than anybody else, even though you're all hearing it, those of you who listen, but I have to, when I hit that spiritual wall, get up and go and pray. Make the effort to go and pray. It's maybe like grabbing onto a branch in quicksand but that branch can preserve my spiritual life because the branch is God himself. And as Pentecost comes up this Sunday, I'm remembering that the apostles were terrified, fearful, perhaps even angry, I don't know, after the death of their leader, Jesus Christ. And they thought they had hit a spiritual wall and that everything that they had spent years, three years doing, with him had been an utter waste. And then the Holy Spirit took these terrified men, these flawed men, and upon their receiving the tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit, they became brave and firm and committed, and they stayed that way unto death. If I could have but some of that bravery and calm, I would be ever grateful to the Lord. so ends another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Another episode of grappling with stuff. Well, I guess that's what we all do, right? I will see you, or you will hear me, next week. Mm-hmm.